Welcome to the Dear Rochester Retire Well Podcast with David Pulsini from Six Point Financial Partners. In this podcast, find your path towards a brighter financial future with David as your guide as he helps individuals, educators, and healthcare professionals explore ways they can build wealth while minimizing risk using a multifaceted, comprehensive approach to personal finance. Are you ready to take the first step towards a brighter financial tomorrow? Let's get started. We are back with part two of our tax series. And in the last episode, in case you missed it, we went over the tax preparation checklist. We had a number of people reach out to us for that. So if you do not have one and you need a checklist to get your taxes prepared, uh, feel free to reach out and ask us for one. Be happy to send that out to you. We also went over a little bit of tax history, how taxes could have been over 90% of your paycheck during a lot of the last 100 years. And uh, today we are going to go over some of the most frequently asked questions that we get about taxes. And before we jump into those questions, I wanted to start with some fun facts, if that makes any sense when we're talking about taxes. But did you know that in Texas, there is a 6.25% sales tax on belt buckles? That is real. I'm assuming that's a huge revenue producer for the state. But because I couldn't help myself, I looked up the average cost of a belt buckle, and it's somewhere around $25, with the most expensive belt buckle being, take a guess, how much could a belt buckle possibly cost? 400000 It has like 14 carats of diamonds in it and some other things and works 75 different ways, whatever. But that means if you bought that belt buckle in Texas, there'd be a $25,000 tax on it. So at that price, I would just probably have a relative in another state buy it for you, but we're probably not looking at $400,000 belt buckles anyway. Second fun fact, how about in good old New York State, there's a bagel tax. I did not know this. I've lived in New York State basically my whole life. If you want to get a sliced bagel in New York, you have to pay an extra eight cents to have it cut with a knife. It has something to do obviously with the prepper. Now it's prepared food. There's an extra eight cents if you want it sliced versus whole. This is called the bagel tax. How much can you take out of your current investments and never run out of money? When is the absolute best time to take Social Security? Are you 100% confident in your investment strategy? Are you paying too much in taxes? Why? If something were to happen to you today, what would they find? If you are doubting any of this and would like a second opinion or to review these items, along with many more, feel free to reach out to us. You can visit us at www.sixpointsfp.com or email us at info at sixpointfp.com. Back to the show. If 500,000 bagels per day are cut, that's $40,000 per day of tax on bagels. If a million bagels are cut, obviously that's $80,000 per day. Where that money's going, I guess we'd have to check the state budget, but I found that interesting. And the last one, uh, the last frequently, before we get into the frequently asked questions, is uh, in 1696, obviously a long time ago, England taxed the number of windows on a house. So obviously and consequently, houses began to be built with very few windows or people would close existing windows so they wouldn't have to pay tax on it. And eventually people started to suffer health problems from lack of windows I shouldn't laugh, an error. I think that's crazy. And then finally, the tax was repealed in 1851. So if you see some buildings or houses from that time 
and the windows are filled with bricks, or there seems to be like an odd lack of windows. Now you know why those folks didn't want to pay taxes. My thing is, how did it take them 150 something years to repeal that tax? That's interesting. So, all right, moving on. Frequently asked questions we get about taxes. Question number one, and I, I believe I have nine of them, but question number one, what states have no income tax? I've been getting that a lot recently. I think a lot of folks are retiring. They're wondering uh, what they're planning. Where can I go where I won't pay state income tax? So just to be clear, everybody who earns a paycheck pays a federal income tax. That's everywhere in the United States, right? 43 of the 50 states charge a state income tax. So that means that there are seven states that do not have state income tax. And those states are Alaska. I don't have many folks retiring to Alaska, but that'd be great. Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. So none of those states charge an income tax. For perspective and comparison purposes, if you're in New York, your state taxes are somewhere between 4% and 10.9%. Okay, so let's take a couple making $200,000 per day. They may pay somewhere around $12,000 to be in New York, where those other seven states, the taxes would be zero. So you can see, what if it were 400000 What if it were a million? Do we think this contributes to people moving out of state or moving their business? You can decide that. Okay. So question number two, how this is a big one. How can I reduce my tax bill? Most people want to know how to pay less in taxes. I don't think I've ever had anybody say I want to pay more in taxes, but the tax code does provide several ways where to, to control your tax bill, but you can take deductions and credits and deductions allow you to reduce your taxable income. And a tax credit allows you to directly reduce your tax liability. I'll get into this more later on in this episode, but there is a difference between a deduction and a credit that's very, very big difference and important difference. But the most common way to reduce our taxes right now is through if you have an employer plan. And what I mean by that is a 401k, a 403b, a deferred comp plan, an HSA, an FSA. So if we contribute to those, those are pre-tax dollars going in. That reduces your taxable income. All of these accounts allow you to contribute, again, pre-tax to invest or hold the cash in for savings or certain expenses. As a result, uh, these contributions lower your taxable income and save you money on your tax bill. Okay, If you do not have an employer plan or you make below a certain threshold, I'm not going to get into that, you may be able to also contribute to a pre-tax IRA. So there's some creative ways to make that happen. But basically, if we're the easiest way to reduce our taxable income is by contributing to all of these accounts. So other reductions are often made by what we call itemizing your expenses. Okay. This means that you make a list of all the possible things that you may be able to deduct for individuals working in an employer. It sometimes might not make sense to do this. Sometimes it does, but, but why there's something called a standard deduction. And for a single filer, it's, Call it thirteen thousand dollars, okay? For a married filer, we'll call it twenty. It's twenty five thousand nine hundred dollars. So you automatically get a deduction if you're married filing jointly of twenty five thousand nine hundred. If you can itemize your expenses and it equals more than twenty five thousand nine hundred, it would make sense to itemize. If you itemize your expenses and it's less, you would take the twenty five thousand nine hundred dollar deduction. So. This should be fun. I'm not going to get into politics on this podcast, but I, I'm, I've i heard this several times and I just heard it again recently. 
hey, Dave, I used to be able to deduct my expenses, but Donald freaking Trump ruined it. <laughs> so so now I have to take a, a, the other deduction and I can't write anything off anymore. Okay. I'm not defending or sticking up for anybody, but here's the deal. For that person that's saying that, that is typically a good thing. That means that the standard deduction change in the tax law helped you. And in most cases, probably a lot. You are now getting a much larger deduction than you would have versus adding up all of your deductible expenses. So for, in 2018, the standard deduction changed from 12700 if you aren't familiar with this, to 24000 This was in 2018. So would you rather deduct 14000 in expenses that year, for example, or take the $24,000 deduction? You'd rather take the 24000 So obviously, unless you're the greatest patriot of all time and you want to pay much more in taxes voluntarily. Um, okay. I don't even know how I got into that, but the point was <laughs> we were trying to reduce your tax bill. Standard deduction is a good thing for a lot of folks. Um, we work with a lot of teachers, nurses. They may be writing off two, three, five thousand $5,000 of classroom expenses or supplies or whatever it is. You'd rather take the standard deduction in most cases, okay? Unless somebody owns a business in your family or your spouse is making a lot of money. That gets into some other things. But um, a couple more popular tax deductions would be student loan interest. If you meet certain income criteria, um, home interest, home mortgage interest, state and local taxes and more. So also, if you have a side hustle or a side business or work as an independent contractor, own a small business, whatever, you can deduct a lot of the costs related to running and maintaining that business. So you have access to deductions for maybe a home office or self-employment taxes, supplies, equipment, depreciation on certain assets, uh, health and business insurance, utilities, and, and there huge list of things you can do if you if you own a business. Uh, the tax code makes it very beneficial for us to own and run a business as long as we're doing it properly. And also, I, just so everybody knows, there are many ways to reduce your taxes based on your personal situation. The best way to figure this out is to meet with a CPA to go over this that would be the best move. Okay. So that answers the question about how do I pay less in taxes? Uh, it, it's a huge gauntlet of exercises that we could go through to show you the different ways. But number three, uh, the number three question that we get is what is the difference between marginal and effective tax rates? So I, no one asks it that way, but that is what they are asking. When somebody, they're asking us this question, it sounds more like this. Hey, Dave, I'm in the 24% tax bracket, but it looks like I'm paying less. Does that make any sense to you? Am I doing something wrong? Or we'll hear, hey, Dave, I went into the next tax bracket. Now I owe a ton more. Or this one, I, I got a bonus and it all went to taxes because I went into a higher bracket. What the heck? I might as well have not even gotten a bonus. <laughs> um, so the US uses what we call a progressive tax system, meaning as you earn more, your that income may fall into a higher marginal tax bracket. That's a lot to digest in itself. But in 2022, which is the year that we're currently filing our taxes for, there are seven marginal tax brackets with the lowest beginning at 10% on any of your taxable income over $1. So if you make over a dollar, there's a you're in a 10% tax bracket right then. The highest bracket is at 37%. And that is if you're above 539900 for single filers and 647,850 for married couples who filed jointly. So your marginal tax rate is the tax rate of the tax bracket that your last dollar falls in. Let me give you an example. That's that's a lot. 
In 2022, if your taxable income was 525000 your marginal tax rate would be 35% because that amount falls into the 35% bracket. I'm going to give you an, an easier example here. A married couple ends up with 191000 of income. Okay, In 2022, the 22% tax bracket goes from 89,451 to 190,750. But I made 191,000, Dave. The cutoff's at 190,750. I'm $250 over. What happens? How much do you now owe? Folks, you are not all of your money is not taxed at 24% now. That's the question that we get. Only the $250, it's actually technically $249, is taxed at 24%. Right, you made one ninety one. The tax bracket cutoff was one hundred ninety thousand seven hundred fifty. That's a difference of two hundred fifty bucks. Only that two hundred fifty dollars is taxed at that twenty four percent. It does not mean all of your money is taxed at twenty four percent. Just the amount that is over that last tax bracket is taxed at that amount. I know this is a lot to digest. So we we have a piece called the. Uh, 2023 important numbers that shows in a simple format the tax brackets along with a lot of other information on taxes to do with retirement accounts, RMDs, which we're going to do, social security, um, inheritances, estate taxes, and more. So if you want that 2023 important numbers piece, just again, reach out to us and we'll happily send that out. All right, on to the next question. Which is better, a tax credit or a tax deduction, as I mentioned in the, in the first question? Uh, really, all things being equal, a tax credit is preferred. Tax credits really, I mean, they reduce your what you owe dollar for dollar while tax deductions lower your taxable income. So for example, if you prepare your taxes and have a total tax bill of $25,000, a $5,000 tax credit would reduce your bill to $20,000. It goes against it dollar for dollar. So now you only owe twenty dollars instead of $25,000. If you had a $5,000 tax deduction and earned, we'll call it $150,000, your income tax liability doesn't go down by 5000 it doesn't go from 25 to 20000 what it does is it reduces your income to 145000 and really in this case it means that depending on your tax bracket you might save between 0 and $1200 as compared to 5000 from a tax credit so if you can get tax credits take them okay and i'd be asking a cpa or a financial advisor about that which ones do i qualify for the five most common tax credits right now are are this, the earned income tax credit, American opportunity tax credit, the lifetime learning credit, child and dependent care credit, and savers tax credit. I could get into each of those for 10 minutes. I'm not going to do that. Uh, use your favorite tool to search any of those. Rewind 15 seconds, listen to them again, look them up and see if you qualify or better yet, just ask somebody that does this uh, as a profession. So tax credits are great. Tax deductions are also good, but I'll take the credits in most cases. Uh, number five, can I deduct medical expenses? We've been hearing that a lot recently. And each year, the IRS allows you to deduct unreimbursed expenses for qualified qualifying medical expenses that exceed 7.5% of your adjusted gross income. So basically, if you have more than 7.5% of your income spent on medical expenses for, and there's an extensive list, but it's uh, preventative care, medical treatment, surgeries, dental and vision care, psychologists, psychiatric visits, prescription medications. There's a long list. I'm not going to go through them all. But if all of those expenses add up to more than 7.5%, you could potentially deduct them on your taxes. So a quick interruption. 
Six Point Financial Partners is taking on new clients. If you would like to take the next step in planning your future with Dave or the Six Point team, please visit them at www.sixpointfp.com to schedule a time or reach out via LinkedIn, Facebook, or simply find us on the internet by searching Six Point Financial Partners. Okay, back to the show. Again, it goes back to itemizing. So how much you can deduct depends on your income and whether you itemize your deductions. So let's say your adjusted gross income is 100,000 for easy math and you itemize your deductions. You can deduct medical expenses in excess of $7,500. So if you had $10,000 of medical bills and you made 100,000, you could deduct 2,500 of that. I hope that makes sense. 7.5%, anything above 7.5% of your income can be deducted for medical expenses. Okay. If you have any questions about that, again, reach out to your accountant or send us an email or ask your advisor. Um, I'm going to get more into the financial planning piece of it now and some of the things that we we hear again. But the next question is, what are capital gains? And I know 2022 was a rough year. There weren't a lot of gains, but technically you may still have had gains in your portfolio based on moves you made. But the most common capital gain is on money that you have invested after tax. So let's say you take money from a bank account and then you put it into funds that are not a retirement account. It's not a Roth. It's not a traditional IRA or any of those accounts. It's just in a brokerage account. Maybe it's in some funds or stocks. It has since grown. Okay. And then you take some out. Whatever growth that you have in that fund, you may owe some taxes on the difference. I'll give you an example. If you put $100,000 into an after-tax account, okay, you do that. Over two years, it has grown to 110000 For the ease of the example, let's say you cash the whole thing out. You put in a hundred, two years later, it's worth one hundred and ten. You cash it out. You have a ten thousand dollar capital gain. Because this was more than one year, you might owe what's called long-term capital gains tax. Short-term taxes are different. We're going to get into that later. The amount that you would owe on the ten thousand dollar gain depends on your income for that year. Okay. If you're married filing jointly, if your income is less than $83,350, you might actually owe $0 on that gain. If you are between 83350 and 517000 the capital gains would be 15%. If you're over that $517,200, technically, the gains are taxed at 20%. So we can plan based on when to take gains. If you have a lower income year, maybe that's when we want to take out some of the gains that you've had over the years. So another side note here, if you have an account that holds several funds or stocks or whatever it is, and within the account, so you have an account in last year, 2022, let's say you had an account that you've had in there for years. It's It went up to 200,000 and in 2022, it went down to 180,000. Within the account, you probably have funds or stocks, right? It's got to be invested in something. If any of those funds inside of that account are sold at a gain, but you didn't take the money out to use it, just it was sold within the account at a gain. Is that a capital gain? So you're looking at a statement, 200,000, it's down to 180,000. Some moves were made. You might not be paying attention to it. Hopefully your advisor is. Do you owe money on that? The answer is yes. There is a capital gain. That will drive people crazy. Dave, we lost money in our account. How do we possibly have a gain that we have to claim? Well, one of the funds that you held for a long time may have gone up. It made may have made sense to rebalance. So we need to be aware of this when we are managing client accounts. 
And good advisory teams are definitely on top of this. It's a, it's a big deal, especially after the last 10 to 15 years of just the market going up and up and up when people bought these funds. We really haven't seen large losses until recently. So I mentioned this before, short-term gains. The technical definition is net short-term gains are subject to taxing at ordinary income rates within 12 months. Okay, so if you cash out, if you put in money and it goes way up and you cash it right out, that goes on to your taxes as ordinary income. What does that mean? Let me give you an example over the last couple of years. If you bought some crypto a couple of years ago, you made a million dollars and then immediately sold it, your income just went up by $1 million. That is a big deal. Some folks cashed it out maybe a month too early. If they just waited past the time, it, their taxes would have been much less. So rather than pay 37%, maybe they could have paid 20%, 17% on a million, 170,000. So be careful with short-term trading on your own. Most folks are not thinking about the tax treatment when they're buying and selling stocks or logging into their accounts and making moves. It, it could be a big deal. Okay. And by the way, for last year, again, what, maybe the opposite. What if I lost money? Are there capital losses? Yes, there are. If your losses exceed your gains, the amount of the excess loss that you can claim to lower your income is at most $3,000. So in my example, the person went from 200 to 180. Let's say it's simple. There may be some losses that we could take in there too. But Dave, but Dave, you ask, what if I lost way more than $3,000? Okay, I get it. If your capital loss is more than the $3,000 limit, you can carry those losses forward to later years indefinitely as it stands today in our tax law. So that 3,000, if you lost $90,000 and you could take that, that that's $3,000 a year for 30 years, you could technically carry forward. Okay. Um, what is an RMD? That's our next question. I don't know. A lot of people have been asking this in a it's what RMD stands for required minimum distribution. We've talked about that a lot. It's the amount of money that you must take from a pre-tax account at a certain age. Okay. So you have a 401k, an IRA, a SEP, a simple. In 2023, so this was just changed, the age in which you must begin taking the RMD changed to 73 years old. Account holders after that must start withdrawing from that account by April 1st, following the year they reach age 73. Okay. The account holder must withdraw the RMD amount each year based on the current calculation. So there's a table that we follow based on your age and based on the account value as of December 31st of the year before. I know this is a lot. I'm sorry, but on 12, this is just tax talk, right? On December 31st of whatever year, we find we get the final value of your pre-tax account. Then we say, how old are you? Then there's a number the IRS gives us that we have to take. And that, that might be the biggest issue. So what if you don't take it? The penalty for not taking the RMD is 50% of what is supposed to be taken. We've said this a lot, but it's really important. People are not tracking this. And as an example, if an RMD of $10,000 is not taken, what's the penalty? Well, it's $5,000. It's a huge penalty, right? 50% of what you're supposed to take. If you're supposed to take $10,000 and you don't, you're going to get a tax bill for $5,000, okay? This is something that you obviously want to avoid. We've seen several situations where folks, the most common is they have multiple accounts or different types of accounts. They have an IRA, maybe another IRA, an old 401k sitting somewhere, and they think that they're taking enough out and they're not. 
and we've said this many times before, you have to take it from each type of account. So if you have an IRA and a 401k and you need to take $10,000, but you only take it from one of them, you, you have to take it from both. And just tracking that alone uh, can sometimes be a nuisance. So I would definitely suggest reaching out to a CPA and a, or an advisor that can get you organized on this and make sure that you're not missing an RMD and getting a 50% penalty. So, all right, folks, I, I know this is a lot. The, <laughs> the last question that we want to answer today is this. And I think as our population is getting older, the boomer generation, as we know, uh, it's 10,000 people a day are turning 65. We are getting more and more people that are either they have an inheritance or they're going to be getting an inheritance and they have questions. And for the sake of this podcast, we'll say, do you have to pay taxes on that inheritance? So generally, when you inherit money, generally, it is tax-free to you as a beneficiary. I'm going to get into some more details in a second, but it's tax-free because the income that is received by the person that passed away has already been taxed. Okay. So it's not taxed again when it's passed on to you. All right. So that's the first part. I'm going to get into more detail on that. The second is it may also be taxed to the deceased person's estate. So if it's already taxed to the estate, taxing to the beneficiary and the estate would result in double taxation, which the US tax code tries to avoid. I know there are examples where they where they cannot avoid it or they don't. Um, but let me give you an example. If you're if your dad passes away and he has a hundred thousand dollars in his checking account or or uh, it's buried in a coffee can somewhere. <laughs> you can receive that money and it is not income to you, obviously providing you're the beneficiary of the estate. So, and it's because your dad has already been taxed on it. All right. This is also true whether you inherit money from anyone. It doesn't have to be your dad. You actually don't even have to be related to the person who leaves you the inheritance. Okay. So, Backing up to the first thing I said, not all money received is tax-free. And this is obviously extremely common because most folks have some sort of pre-tax retirement account, IRA, 401k, 403b. That money is taxable to the beneficiary. This is why, because it, these funds have never been taxed, right? The person that passed away put it into that account tax-free. They never paid tax on it. That's actually the same reason the IRS makes these RMDs. They want you to start taking money out before you pass away. That's why it's based on age. They want their tax dollars. Okay. So same when someone passes away, no one's paid taxes on it. They want to get their money. So if your beneficiary is a spouse, so you have a, you have a 401k, for example, or an IRA, your beneficiary is your spouse. That's you pass away. Your spouse has the option of designating that retirement account as a beneficiary IRA or treating it as their own retirement account. That's mostly, most of the time what we do is they just put your name goes off of the statement, their name goes onto the statement. That's it. Okay. That's for a spouse. But besides a spouse, any other beneficiary, with a few exceptions, I should say, must now withdraw all of the pre tax funds within 10 years of the date of death of the original account owner. Okay. And that's if they passed away after December 31st, 2019. There are different rules that apply to owners who passed away before 2020, but we're not going to get into that. So somebody passes away now, you get a bunch of money, you have to take it over 10 years unless you're married to them, okay? You can you can take a lump sum, right? But most of the time, that's going to crush you on taxes, okay? Uh, the, these distributions cannot be rolled over into your own account. We get that question all the time. Hey, Dave, I got a $500,000 account from my mom, 
Can I just put that in my own? No, you cannot because the IRS wants it separate. That is now a beneficiary IRA. You have to take it over 10 years. Okay. Um, I could keep getting into this, but I'll close the inheritance tax question with this. If you have or are going to inherit money or plan on it, you should immediately make a plan for how to minimize your taxes. There are things that you can do to set yourself up properly today. And one example might be this. You inherit a $500,000 IRA from from dad. You need to take that out before 10 years is up. Okay? $500,000 goes to you. It's in an account. It's still invested, by the way. It could still be growing. But in 10 years, that thing needs to be zero. Okay? We want to look for opportunities for you to pay less in taxes. So maybe you wait until you retire. So you you inherit some money. You're going to retire in two years anyway. Let's just not take any money for a couple of years because most likely when you retire, you may be in a lower tax bracket. We don't know that, but it's something to consider. Okay. Maybe you start a business and you want to put the max pre-tax dollars into a solo 401k. We can write off or deduct large amounts for solo 401ks and maybe have your spouse do the same. You could get a lot of money into pre-tax retirement accounts. So what I mean by that is if you have to take $100,000 out of that account, maybe we're opening accounts that we can contribute $100,000 pre-tax into and it completely offsets, okay? Um, Perhaps you have some sort of loss coming up where it would be advantageous to take some of that IRA at that point. You sell a business at a loss. You have other losses that we can use that might offset you taking that money out because when you take that 500,000, it goes on to your income taxes. Now we're looking on the other side to deduct it, right? So my point is there's a lot of planning opportunities with these situations. And I have seen, and I'm just one person, but even across my team, we've seen so many cases where it can save tens, seriously, hundreds of thousands of dollars by prepping people for inheritance money the proper way or finding creative ways for them to plan. Okay. Folks, uh, that was a tax beating. <laughs> I understand that. That's uh, so I want to get onto a podcast, honestly, is uh, people ask these questions and I can just send them clips now, right? Uh, I don't have to answer this over and over and over again. But um, if you're listening this long, it's been a feat in itself. And uh, the truth is, by the way, we've just scratched the surface. If somebody came in here and was asking real questions, I really try not to ever do this in a meeting, and I know most advisors don't, but folks have their individual tax questions that they may be asking. We could go on for hours and hours just on taxes alone, okay? Um, And I know it's not the most exciting topic, but obviously it's very important. So what I would say is this. If you do have questions on taxes, reach out to your CPA. If you need a CPA, let us know. We can introduce you to somebody in our professional network that could help you out. If you have questions on planning, some of the planning ideas that we talked about, reach out to us or your your advisor, okay? Make sure this stuff is taken care of. Find somebody you trust. And I, I like to say this, you don't need to know all of this stuff. You just want to trust somebody and you want to know that they know and that they're looking out for you, okay? We hope you find this helpful. Make it a great day. Thank you for listening to the Dear Rochester Retire Well Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Six Point Financial Partners. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. 
Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Content here is for illustrative and educational purposes only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific trading strategy. Results will vary. Past performance is no indication of future results or success. Market conditions change continuously. This commentary reflects the personal opinions, viewpoints, and analysis of Six Point Financial Partners. It does not necessarily represent those of RFG Advisory, private client services, their clients, or their employees. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by Six Point Financial Partners or RFG Advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, a registered investment advisor. Private client services, Six Point Financial Partners, and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place.